I actually think CDP is slave labour. I wouldn't say it's a band-aid for unemployment um, because it's doing nothing in building people's skills up in an area that will lead to employment. I just think it's an extremely racist and punitive program that's been put on people that live remotely. And I think government have got this sense of out of sight, out of mind. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Ayan Shirwa. At the top of the show, you heard from Lara Watson, the Indigenous Officer of the Australian Council of Trade Union, discussing the exploitative practices of the Community Development Program. More from Lara later on the show. On today's episode of Accent, we asked, does New Start Allowance provide for a basic living wage or should the payment be raised to meet the changing living standards? New Start Allowance is income support payments for job seekers who meet the eligibility criteria. Job seekers are required to actively look for work by participating in activities that enhance their employment chances as well as attend regular appointments with their job service providers. In June of this year, the Australian Local Governments Association passed a motion to increase the New Start Allowance payments. If the peak body of Australian councils is paying attention to their local members, isn't it time the federal governments did too? To help us understand the challenges faced by job seekers on New Start Allowance, we spoke to Gemma, a Melbourne-based writer and musician. What factors impact your ability to find work? Um, so because I have what's called major depressive disorder, it's my, my mood disorder means that my depressive episodes can be quite long. Um, so what will happen is it, if I have um, insomnia, uh, chronic insomnia is also one of the things I seem to struggle with within my depression, it starts to get difficult to keep um, nine to five jobs. Even if I know that I'm scheduled to work even three days a week, nine to five or some, something like that, hmm. I will stop. Um, I'll start sleeping really badly and then show up to work, be pretty exhausted and I'm Ashamed to admit that, unfortunately, I've had um, employment terminated because I just wasn't well enough or awake um, to make it to shifts. Because mm. after after about three months of chronic insomnia, you'll find days where you might need to sleep 12 to 15 hours a day for maybe three to five days, mm. <laughs> which... Um, yeah, um, and a lot, unfortunately, a lot of employers are not understanding about that. So factors impacting ability to find work, um, even disclosing that I have a chronic mental health condition. I mean, I can get, I can get to an interview. I can show up to an interview. I can be skilled enough, but if they know that about me, um, and I don't, I. Yeah, I'm an appalling liar. It's just mm. easier to it's just easier to tell the truth and be upfront. 
Um, yeah. Hmm. And it won't matter if I'm qualified enough um, and that I've got an interview. I, I will be, yeah, most likely told that they've found, yeah, that it's gone to another um, suitable candidate. Yeah. Yeah, and that's one thing I feel like doesn't receive a lot of coverage the fact that people it's not about qualification or it's not about being skilled it's having health issues that perhaps employers may not want to make adjustments for that's exactly right it's um i mean if someone breaks a bone with it it's completely understandable that there are so many things that a person physically cannot do and we make allowances for that but with mental health and mental health conditions, yeah, it's it's not even about getting your foot in the door. It, as as soon as they find out that you might have that, it's just as you said, um, they don't want to make the adjustments necessary, even if that means that you might um, be able to work remotely. So you know, working in your pajamas um, at home. Um, and still working the hours that you can work, but maybe not in a nine-to-five session. It might be something like, um, you know, 12 to 8 or, yeah, 11 to 7 or something like that. And do your mutual job obligations affect your mental and social well-being? Um, So I'm actually, at the moment, pretty fortunate to be with a job network provider that understands that I am actively seeking employment and I do meet my obligations. Prior to that, it impacted my mental health um, significantly and definitely for the worse. I mean, I would have panic attacks afterwards. Um, I would sometimes cry in my car after appointments because the, the people at job network uh, providers, um, these these agencies, they they talk to you in a way as if they make it sound like you're not trying hard enough to mm. get better. And you, there's just no way of explaining to them that um, your body just doesn't make enough of a particular chemical that makes most humans um, want to get up and get out of bed and actually enjoy life. So it can be quite demeaning and depending, I'm thinking of a very specific branch, in fact, and it it did, it impacted my mood to the stage where I was in and out of hospital. So mm-hmm. there's a um, private psychiatric facility that, um, that I cannot, of, of course, afford on my own. I'm very, very fortunate to have private health insurance that my parents very kindly pay Mm. for. And, um, yeah, it has resulted in my mental health deteriorating to a stage where I've had to be in hospital for three to eight weeks. Mm. Um, Because, yeah, the process is patronising and demeaning and there doesn't seem to be enough training about how to talk to people with mental health conditions. Yeah. 
And the current new start payment that you're on, um, in your personal opinion, do you feel like it meets your essential needs? Uh, no, definitely not. Um, I, I now currently live rent-free with my mum and dad. And that means it actually now only now feels like a luxury because I can afford to buy things like um, feminine sanitary products and not worry about if my bank account's got enough money in it. Mm. Um, Also, work-related costs. So sometimes I need to purchase... um, materials that I'm reviewing or materials for research. Uh, but before that, I, when I was, so I am still on Newstart, and when I was living in a share house, one fortnight, um, that, the first fortnight payment would go solely to paying rent, and then the second one would be um, for groceries, and it, uh, again, I'm mm. um, not advo- advocating that anyone do this, um, but it definitely meant that I was averaging maybe one to two meals a day, and if I could, I did skip meals because um, good food, uh, when I say good food, I mean fresh, healthy food is quite expensive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you've got, you've got to eat well to stay mentally well Mm. as well. And it, yeah, it was not great. It meant that, um, I think the only thing I really felt that I could afford and not worry about not being able to afford were my antidepressants, Mm. but even my psychiatrist who um, is only $20 over the um, the rebate. So when I go to see my psychiatrist, I'm only $20 out of pocket, which is is actually quite amazing mm. because um, that's not, yeah, that's not, um, yeah, that's really fortunate for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, there would be times when I would have to prioritize food before an appointment to see my psychiatrist um, and yeah other other things would come up as well it there's yeah it's very mm. you can you can budget as well as you want to and it's still it's really really stressful also the Australian unemployed workers union reported that one in four people are who are on New Start allowance have a significant disability. How would an increase in payment improve your ability to receive an adequate standard of living? Um, I would be able to move closer to the city where a lot of um, the writing work that I do and um, am involved in does tend to be very city-based. At the moment, my... Um, Again, quite fortunate to live with my mum and dad rent free, but it's it's at the it's a fifteen minute walk from South Morang train station. Mm. <laughs> it's which is uh, yeah, it's not you can't even get there in two minutes to the train station. Um, 
by bus. Um, so um, an increase would mean people like myself could look for um, accommodation closer to the city, which would mean less commuting, which mm. would then in turn mean if we were able to, we could work more and find more work that's suitable for us. Yeah, and when you think about the cost, I don't know about you, but I take public transport and the cost of my key is just exorbitant. It's 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 not doable. And when you consider that sometimes some people are on, um, some people take um, zone one and zone two, which means extra money. It's, yeah. Yeah, all these things add up. In isolation, they might not seem like a lot, but when you think about like everything you've said, medication, traveling costs, these things really do, you know, put a dent on our pockets. Yeah, and rest. Um, if you have to commute longer to a place of employment, um, that actually means that you probably have less time to rest and recharge, which is important for people with um, mood disorders. And I can only imagine how much harder it must be for people with um, access, accessibility requirements and physical disabilities. It's, yeah. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. On today's show, we've been discussing the challenges faced by job seekers on New Start Allowance. Those hit hardest by inadequate support programs are often from historically marginalised and exploited communities. One such practice is the Community Development Program. We spoke to Lyra Watson, who is the spokesperson for the First Nations Workers' Alliance. What is the Community Development Program? The Community Development Program is a Work for the Doll program, uh, which only operates in remote communities in Australia. And how are job seekers put on the program? Um, There really isn't any consistency that we can determine. So when we're out visiting remote communities, we've actually come across 17-year-olds that are just coming out of school and being put straight onto CDP. We've also met uh, people that have been on disability before and they're getting put on CDP. So unlike other work for the doll programs where it's around a job plan um, and building skills to hopefully lead to employment, there really isn't any consistent criteria where our remote community workers are being put on to CDP. So is it for people who are on, for example, a job activity or it's part of their job activity? Yeah. So the Community Development Program um, is supposed to do some training that leads to employment, uh, like a Work for the Dog program in regional and metropolitan centres. The problem is, and what makes it very, very different, or the Community Development Program very, very different to other Work for the Dog programs, is it is extremely punitive. Uh, We have participants that have to do the program for 25 hours a week 
as opposed to any other program where it's 15 to 25 hours. There's very, very little flexibility, so it has to be five hours a week. Anyone else has got flexibility around when they do their 15 hours. Uh, what we're finding um, with people that are unable to attend an activity, so whether it's for cultural reasons, they've got sick children at home, or it is for another medical purpose, they're actually being taken off the payment for eight weeks. So they've got absolutely no money coming into that eight weeks. And we don't see that happening in any other Work for the Doll program. Hmm. What it sounds like is it sounds like a very exploitative scheme. Would you say so? Oh, most definitely. One thing that is happening around the community development program in our remote communities is for the first time private enterprise and private businesses are having access to this free pool of labour and that's our CDP workers. So you're in communities that have very, very few jobs as it is. So where there are jobs are now being filled by community development program workers. So it's hitting the community twice. Someone um, who's looking for employment opportunities that is on CDP is getting put into a job that could be filled by a local person on a permanent basis. Hmm. And for those, because I've heard the criticism that um, people are saying that, you know, those enrolled in CDP are pretty much earning their keep but when the calculations are done there was a report by the Australian Institute and it shows that the people on CDP are actually make are making below the minimum wage which currently stands yes. at $18.95. Yes so any work for the doll program that's been implemented through major centres they're getting paid at a minimum wage rate if you're on the community development program, it equates to $11.20 an hour. But then you've also got that punitive system in place where you risk losing your money for up to eight weeks. And we've seen, uh, we've had examples come across our table where people have been asked to get medical certificates by a Centrelink-approved doctor, some travelling up to three, four days to get those certificates just to come back to their home and it not be the relevant information that they need and they're still being breached for the eight weeks. It's an extremely punitive system that they've put in place. Very, very difficult to run through the administration process that they put on these workers and they're living remotely. We've got some of our community people that are on CDP. They live on an outstation and are travelling and hour just to get to their activity so if they've got no money for fuel or there's no transport available to them then they're getting breached because they can't attend an activity and they can't go to a Centrelink in their community they've actually got to ring a hotline and the wait times are averaging three hours and when you think about remote areas and the challenges that come along with living in remote areas do you think the CDP is a is sort of like a band-aid solution for um, unemployment? Um, I actually think CDP is slave labour. I wouldn't say it's a band-aid for unemployment um, because it's doing nothing in building people's skills up 
in an area that will lead to employment. I just think it's an extremely racist and punitive program that's been put on people that live remotely. And I think government have got this sense of out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Um, you know, when you look at cost of living in, in our communities, they're a lot higher than anywhere else. I come across a family that will paint $85 for baby formula. Um, mm. So I don't think it's a Band-Aid effect. I just think it's um, a, an oppressive system that's been put in place to keep our most vulnerable communities in a cycle of poverty. Mm. And when you think about the numbers and the locations, do you think it targets um, the Aboriginal community? Communities, sorry? Oh, most definitely. If you look at where the community development program is being run out, these are communities that are 98% Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander. So when you do that comparison to any other work for the Dole program, why is it that a program that's meant to lead to employment opportunities so much more punitive in remote communities as what it would be in you know, major regional and metropolitan areas. Mm. So it's hard not to say that it's not a racist program when you're looking at where the program is being run out. Mm. And when you think about the history of um, Aboriginal labour being exploited... Yes, it's all about money when it comes to government. Um, They think that a, a program in place like this is going to be beneficial in long term, but it's actually more expensive is what they're implementing now. So the administration costs, it's, you know, for every dollar a CDP participant gets, it costs government 70 cents to administer. And when you look at um, other programs in place and they're not matching up, you know, I look back at stolen wages. So here in Queensland, I was a part of that campaign and it's absolutely appalling when we're going back, you know, 56, 50, 60 years ago where they had Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working for tea and flour and sugar. And now we look here and it's basically the same principles in place. Um, it is slave labour. Mm. And the way this program is being sold is that it helps the community. So people are working within the community and giving back. Do you think that's a reasonable argument? No, I don't. I've visited these communities and it is not helping communities. There is nothing in place when it comes to CDP that enables self-determination. It doesn't allow economic growth. And, you know, it is actually starving out our communities. One person that is breached and misses payments for eight weeks affects the whole community because the whole community will rally around that person to ensure that they've got food on the table. So when you start getting four, five, six people that are being breached for eight weeks, it becomes a real issue for the community. And solutions... What what would you suggest would be an alternative to the CDP when it comes to unemployment, I guess, and building stronger communities? Well, any program that's put in place in our remote communities, which is meant to be around training and development and upskilling for employment, 
there needs to be some sort of community control, community consultation with government on what that would be. There's no point training people up in an area that doesn't have the potential to be to follow through into employment. I mean, there needs to be more programs like the Rangers program. We've seen that that is extremely beneficial to the people on the Rangers program and the communities in which they live in. You know, we have come out and supported um, the APON alternative model. But if you are putting people into what is considered a paid wage job anywhere else in the country, then they should be paid a wage with the proper employment conditions and occupational health and safety coverage and workers' compensation. We have seen far too many accidents through CDP where there is no ongoing support for the injuries and seeing too many safety issues being come up and they're threatened that if they don't do the job because they want safety equipment, then they will be breached. It, it's, it's quite aggressive within our communities and our members do actually feel like that their lives are being put at risk with some activities that they are being asked to do. And Lara, um, any final thoughts, anything else that you'd want us to include? Um, well, final thoughts from ourselves. In just 12 months, we've actually covered 20 of the 60 regions at which CDP operates. We've got over 1,000 members in the First Nation Workers Alliance. So our CDP workers are really taking on this campaign as well as the broader community. And we will take on the federal government in this space and we won't stop until the CDP is eradicated. Thank you so much, Lara. Thank you. That was Lara Watson discussing the CDP's failure to deliver jobs and strengthen communities. Lara Watson is the Indigenous Officer of the ACTU and is rolling out the Wage Justice Campaign for CDP workers through the First Nations Workers Alliance. Early on the show, we heard from Gemma Mehida, who is a Melbourne artist and musician. She is a committee member for the Women's Melbourne Network and has performed her work with disability troupe Quippings. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. I am Ayan Shirwa.